Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Kudzu Vine for June 23rd, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you on the line. Um, we'll find out about Catherine soon. And in about 20 minutes, we're really excited to have Glenn Thrush, New York Times writer, uh, joining us for multiple times now on the Kudzu Vine, talk about some national issues uh, with Glenn, and then also we may throw in a little bit of Alabama talk. You know, of the three of us, you know, two of us may live less than 30 minutes from the Alabama line, but, but Glenn's the only one to be a resident uh, of Alabama oh, really? for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're excited about that. But until then, we are going to talk some international politics but we're going to put a American national spin on it, and we're going to start off talking about the prime minister race. Now, Theresa May said she was stepping down, and Tim, before I get any further with this, welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you. I'm sorry I'm a little late. <laughs> Better late than never. Well, um, let's jump yeah. into this. We're going to talk about the prime minister's race, and Theresa May said she was stepping down, and you know that they, they, they um she was uh charged with figuring out some way to brexit if you will but not have a brexit that completely crippled the uh british economy if there was a way to do that um i'm not enough of a international economist to decide that uh but I, it would be tough so you know kind of she lost the 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 um conservative party over there lost confidence in her they had to pick a replacement and the way they do it they seem to kind of uh get take the lowest vote getter in their quorum their um party uh to they take that person off but on every single ballot leading the charge is the uber controversial individual former mayor of london and uh tory parliament member boris johnson uh tim the way it looks, Boris Johnson's going to win this thing, isn't it right? Yeah, it, it, it really does look that way. I, I, I think they're down to the final round of voting. I think there's like, I don't know, 150, 160,000 conservatives actually voting this thing. Um, I, I don't think he can can be stopped. Uh, I, I think his opposition is Jeremy Hunt, and and both of them's main issue it, it is the same, and it, it is the issue of the No Deal Brexit. Uh, so that's you know we'll, we'll talk more about the issues that they're facing and all that in a moment, but it does look like uh, Boris Johnson is going to be the next Prime Minister of Great Britain. <laughs> okay, um, Catherine, what, 
think because British people seem to be more calm and reasoned than your average, you know, Yahoo American, that British politics would not produce a Boris like Boris Johnson like figure. How in the world did they get to this? Well, I think it's a little bit of a myth that they're not, uh, you know, a little bit fiery over there. Um, We have this image of the British as being, you know, mild-mannered, and uh, I think we saw a pretty good uh, example of the fact that that's not the case when uh, President Trump was visiting over there. I think, um, you know, I think we're seeing this all over the uh, all over the world that we're our um, politics is becoming much more divisive and much more um, uh, tribe-like. And I think the United Kingdom is just another, or the Great Great Britain is just another example. Yep. Um, Tim, are you still with me? Yeah, I'm still I'm here. In a, okay, I I didn't hear Catherine for a, the render us the answer. I got worried about technical difficulties. Um, well, let me check on that. But but in the meantime, um, Tim, I, my understanding is. Of the folks that are, you know, running for prime minister were, Boris Johnson was more pro, um, you know, full-on Brexit. Uh, don't worry about the European Union and what other, what other issues come out of that. He may have been scared kind of at the end of it, the process about how fast it was. But still, he's more pro-Brexit than a lot of folks, even in the conservative party. Um, what does that bode for England? Well... The the No Deal Brexit supporters basically say that if we make no deals and we just pull out, that that's it. We're just we're just out of the European Union. Um, then we will get a better deal from individual countries. I, I believe that's and and, and of course. That alarms a a lot of people who are saying, "Let's please slow down. We have time. Let let's let's do this with as little pain as possible." La di da di da di da. And uh, that apparently is not going to happen. And as a result, the UK will be facing a couple of things. First of all, as you know, the link you sent us today. Uh, Scotland, who has threatened to pull out of the United Kingdom for a long time anyway and has come painfully close to doing so, is showing in the polls that by 53 to 47% the Scottish people are ready to pull out of the United Kingdom if this Brexit deal goes through. And the and the other thing that could happen is that Johnson could face a revolt in his own conservative party. If a bunch of the ministers, for instance, um, are are fired and take some of their base with them, if some of the members of parliament decided to switch from conservative to say independent and be seated as independents. He could lose enough steam that Brexit votes could be defeated in Parliament, and it could force a new election, get this, 
in a matter of weeks. That's how tenuous this situation is for them. So uh, uh, the, the the government could topple as soon as it starts. That's the, that's just the way that it looks. Yes, and let's get back to that Scotland question. Scotland didn't vote for Brexit. They almost um, uh, voted to leave before. And the polls say not only do they not like you know the real Brexit happening. They don't like Boris Johnson. Um, but, Catherine, if Scotland were to vote to leave, and Scotland is a big base of power for the Labor Party, wouldn't that actually help Boris Johnson and other conservatives because they would get rid of a, a huge bastion of uh, Labor votes? It would kind of be like if the three Pacific states um, left America. That would be a huge number of votes for Democrats. Yeah, I I gotta say that I think that you know Tim's uh, scenario that he just laid out, or no, I guess it was you uh, that you know I I think the last thing that they need to worry about is the you know sort of uh, party distribution. I think they're going to have a really hard time. I think Boris Johnson and his you know whoever's supporting him, this Brexit thing is going to be really hard, no matter how. They play it, no matter whether they do a no-deal Brexit or whatever. It is going to be painful for for the people of the United Kingdom. And uh, I think it's very possible that it could be, it could be uh, a very short-lived leadership that Boris Johnson has because it's going to be, it, no matter how they do it, it's going to be really hard. So I don't think yes. they need. To, I, now, I think the last thing they need to be worrying about is whether they're going to have Labor Party or uh, whether the Conservatives are going to be have um, more power. I think they're really going to be looking at very short-term success or failure. Yes. Now well, let's kind of bring it up. Go ahead, Tim, if you got a point. Well, I was going to ask go to the next you a, part of it. a question, David, because you you might have been about to bring this up, but as you know, when our president re- recently went to Great Britain, one of the things he said to the British press was uh, that he was an admirer of Boris Johnson and that he hoped he became the next prime minister and la di da. And that was at the time that, you know, 75,000 people uh, were marching in protest of Donald Trump even being over there, and he was insulting, you know, members of the royal family and uh, um, the mayor of London. I don't think he really did Boris Johnson any favors politically by endorsing his candidacy, do you? You you wouldn't think that at all, that he wouldn't do any favors to Boris Johnson, but yet Boris Johnson is ahead. And we, I don't know that we can get deep into, um, you know, why without having some, you know, British uh, politics expert, which we don't have for tonight's show. Um, but, but I would think, you know, since, oh, Boris Johnson controversial, Boris Johnson liked by Trump, Brits don't like Trump, you would think that – uh, every round, once a candidate drops out, that the majority of their supporters would go to another candidate besides Boris Johnson. But that seemingly didn't happen in uh, you know the same numbers you'd think. 
But let's get into a little bit of that question. So um, Brexit happens, and it was seen as a harbinger for what happened in 2016 here, that people are wanting to do unorthodox things around the world, uh, you know, forget the old rules and the old ways. Let's just do things uh, completely different, and Donald Trump's elected in America. People in America and even more so people around the world are shocked that this type of individual can uh, win the presidency and become leader of the free world. And you would think that that would be kind of a scared straight moment for um, the rest of the world. And here, 2018, Democrats regain control in the House of Representatives. Uh, a lot of special elections trend more Democratic. It seems like a lot of folks got energized and learned their lesson. But in Britain, they had a very un-Trump-like figure, even in the conservative party, which is more analogous to the Republicans, Theresa May. And they want they push her aside, get her to side, just give up. And now they're going to replace her with the most Trump-like figure in Britain, Boris Johnson. So, Catherine, why did they not learn America's lesson? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think um, it may have been a matter of not not having a lot of choices. I don't know how many choices. You know, I don't know who was willing to do this. I mean, honestly, it's this is a, a really there. Whoever it does win, it looks like it's going to be Boris Johnson. They've got a really tough road ahead of them, and and. With this Brexit thing, so I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know why they didn't learn. Uh, I don't know enough about British politics to be able to really comment very closely on it. But it is happening around the country, around the world. So I mean, we are moving. There are other examples of more conservative leaders. Well, I mean, you said there's not any choices, but my understanding of parliamentary system is every member of parliament is theoretically um, able to be chosen by the party. I mean, honestly, if my choices were Donald Trump and this mop handle to the right of me, there's a choice for me who I'm picking. Um, Boris Johnson, maybe he's not as, as radical as Donald Trump. Maybe he's more prepared, but he's still a pretty outrageous figure um and so they did have other choices and uh they, they didn't go with that um tim my it, next well, question well it is does this mean that uh, you know we look at polling we see all these different democratic candidates ahead we see all these different uh you know generic democrat ahead we see democrats ahead in all these different state polls that trump won close last time does this mean that um, you know getting rid of very radical conservative-like figures like Donald Trump, like Boris Johnson, is a lot easier said than done? It probably is. These people get in these political parties, and one thing they all have in common, uh, they are very good at removing any opposition and just totally taking – control. And basically that's what Johnson's been able to do in the Conservative Party in England as, as you know, the, I mean that's what he's done with the Tories. So uh 
and and then you know they're just going to have to learn the hard way that uh, that's probably not what the British people want right now, you know. But like I said, it's one political party in Great Britain that's done this. But look at what is going to immediately happen as a result of this. Probably, I mean. If if he doesn't tread very carefully, he's not even going to be at 10 Downing Street uh, just a few weeks, and he's going to have to move yeah. out again. And and not only that, we may be looking at the breakup of Great Britain. They can't afford to lose Scotland. I mean, they can't. If Scotland said, no, we're an independent country, we're going to cut our own deals, we're going to stay in the European Union – well, what are they going to do? Send the army up there? Or, I mean, yeah, this this very serious. They they face a more serious situation by far in that country right now with their new leadership than we do with ours, and that frankly is saying a lot, isn't it? <clears throat> that is saying a lot. Um, well, well, Catherine. You know the Labor Party. You know maybe there's a chance if if that Boris Johnson wins and things don't go. I mean I don't see any way they can go well because Brexit is just like a a decision without a plan. Instead of making a plan, then making a decision. They made a decision. Now they're going to make a plan, and that's the wrong way to do things. Um, and so uh, they're, they face an election. But I've heard that the Labor Party is incredibly weak. Over there, um, if if the Labor Party can't take back control in this environment, uh, what chance do they really have to take back control? Again, I, I I'm, I'm sorry. I I thought I had prepared a little bit for this conversation, but I guess I hadn't. Um, I, I don't really. I, I think that we're fa- they're facing like like Tim's been saying. I think like what happens in the first in the in the um, you know first few weeks is going to determine how strong every, each party is. I mean, if the if the conservative if if Boris Johnson can't hack it, then that's going to strengthen the Labor Party in just a short time. So I just think it's really hard to talk about anything but what happens if Scotland uh, secedes and. They can't make Brexit work. I think the uh, the rest well, well, of it is sort of dependent on what on how those things happen, how, what happens in that way. Well, I'm going to bring an American point back to this discussion, and that is, um, and this is really not nationally, but in certain areas, uh, the republic. I mean, I'm sorry, the Democrats are just not a choice for voters, even when Republican areas get incredibly unhappy. With uh, Republicans in Kentucky, they get unhappy with Matt Bevin. In Kansas, they get incredibly unhappy with Sam Brownback. A lot of Republicans are probably pretty horrified with how Donald Trump handles his business, but Democrats are not an option. That seems to be what's happening in Britain. For a lot of voters, they're like, we don't can't can't believe what's going on with Brexit. We can't believe what's going on if Boris Shelton. I'm sorry. Boris, well, the only could hope that'd be a better leader. Boris Johnson becomes prime minister, but yet labor is not a choice for us. Tim, is this something that we're seeing uh, on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, where 
there is a major political party that is just a non-factor for big swaths of voters. You know, it, it could be, and and we we have seen similar things in this country before, from 1860 to 1932, 72 years. We had two Democrats in the White House in all of that time. What changed that? The Great Depression. A trauma sometimes does change it. Uh, a trauma brought Winston Churchill into the prime minister's office over there in the very Great Britain we're talking about. But as soon as the war was over, what did the British people do? They voted him out. Uh, that, that was it. They were done with him. They were ready for a peacetime government, and he wasn't it. Uh, if the British people get hit hard enough in the pocketbook, History tells us that them and all other voters in democracies around the world uh, will exercise their anger at the polling place. And that's exactly what they will do if they get, if their economy uh, goes in the tank and and I'm having a hard time seeing how it just doesn't on account of this. Their their economy wasn't in that good of a shape to start with. This is not going to help at all. So, Yes, and, and we shall see, and it's a shame people have to suffer to, to, to learn those lessons sometimes. Well, let's kind of transition to uh, something else that's sort of related. I mentioned Matt Bevin. I mentioned Kentucky, and we had had – Matt Wyatt on uh, about two weeks ago talking about Kentucky. Since then, there's been a poll that came out of Kentucky voters, and it still showed Matt um, Bevan in the lead. It really didn't show um, – it really it looked like he was very unpopular, but yet um, Andy Bashir or Democrats in general are just not an option for Kentucky voters. Tim, kind of give us a, a layout of some of those numbers. Well, uh, this is from Gravis Mar uh, Marketing, and it has Bevin up 48 to 42 on Bashir. Uh, they did some down-ballot polling races of particular concern. Uh, was the uh, agriculture race, uh, the, or the attorney general race, excuse me. Uh, the, the Democrats are... On the generic ballot, 11 points behind there, and they have actually held this particular office for like 70 years, uh, believe, believe it or not. Uh, in other polling, they looked ahead to next year, and they had McConnell up by eight uh, over his closest possible opponent. They had Trump up by 20 on Joe Biden, which is really – no surprise at all. Now, I do want to add this caveat. This is one, believe it or not, with, uh, with this race coming up here this year, this is one of only two major polls that has even been taken of the Kentucky governor's race. And the other one, Mason Dixon did it, and it had Bashir up by eight points. So... Take it as you will take it. I think we need a little more polling out there in the field 
before anybody panics in either direction. Yeah, I mean, obviously more polls will be more beneficial. Hopefully the state will get polled. I don't know that it will get polled to the extent Virginia was um, before the uh, governor's race there about three years ago because I remember there it was polling almost like a presidential race, but that's probably because of its proximity to D.C. and all of the um, political consulting firms. Uh, Catherine, um, after talking, hearing from Matt and then seeing those numbers, um, what were your thoughts? Well, it looks like it's going to be a tough, a tough fight for Democrats, but we just have to keep fighting. I mean, you just, you know, as he said, the party's in good shape. We just have to fight. We have to. You know, I don't. I don't know what else you say. You know, you don't. You don't just drop out. You just keep fighting and hope that there is something that happens at the very end of the race that makes that makes Democrats look more attractive, or. Uh, it rains on election day and more Democrats come out and vote. I don't know. But I think the the message is always just keep fighting. You, you keep know, David. Keep voting. You know, David, if you take these two polls and you put them together, the governor is sitting at 44. Bashir is sitting at 45. I don't think there is any reason at the moment for the governor to be celebrating a victory no more than there is uh, any reason for us to be uh, dooming ourselves to defeat at this time. I really, really do think we need two or three more polls out there, and I believe, I tend to believe the compilation polling. I believe this thing is too close to call, and I believe that the governor sits in a rather tenuous position uh, for two reasons. Uh, number one, uh, he's been a terrible governor, and he's really uh, alienated some big voting blocks, like the teachers and some of his supporter own supporters that uh, got cut off of Medicaid expansion and that sort of thing. Um, and the 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 other the other reason being that it just seems to be an anti-incumbent mood going right now. Uh, I think that's also going to be working against him. The big uh, elephant in the room, as it were, may turn out to be Trump. Let's see what he does in this race out there. Let's see if he goes on the road. Let's see if it helps. Yeah, and the fact that it is an odd year, it's not he's not going to be on the ballot with Donald Trump. People right. can vote uh based on that. So that's going to uh actually I think be a detriment in this case to um Matt Bevin. I think if he actually were on the ballot with Trump in a state like Kentucky because when you looked at the national numbers with McConnell's race and with um uh the presidential race, those numbers were better than Matt Bevin's governor's race. Well, now I want to welcome on uh, for several times now from New York Times, one of our favorite guests, Mr. Glenn Thrush. Welcome, Glenn. Hey, gentlemen. How you doing? And lady. We got Catherine as well. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know Catherine. if I'm a lady, but doing? I'm a woman. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, uh, but Glenn, glad to have you on it. And, and it's, it's been a while, but uh, the presidential race has kicked off. Of course, as soon as one ends, man, it's the next day it starts anyway these days. But we want to kind of start off there and talk about, I guess, the way Donald Trump's been handling his business and having his administration handle their business. Every time that um, information is requested, uh, if somebody's subpoenaed to testify, even if they're not a top-level official, they can be an aide to one of his aides. They get stonewalled. Uh, people are allowed to turn in written answers instead of actually testify. They can testify in private without cameras. Um, how is this allowed in a democracy in which free and, and open ideas and, and freedom of the press is one of our cornerstones? That is, a, uh, that is quite the question, and I think it is, it is a, I think you have probably focused on what is the most fundamental question about the Trump presidency. The way that I look at Donald Trump is Trump is like pouring water into a bucket to see if the bucket has any holes, and those holes in our system are norms. Uh, it's a funny, silly-sounding word, but it's an important word, norms, as opposed to laws. Uh, or, uh, or encoded requirements of how a president should behave. And what Trump has been able to do is he, he is fundamentally a boundary-testing person. He was that way in real estate. He's been that way in his private life, and he's been that way with the presidency. So Donald Trump is testing all of these norms. He has pushed the system to places where it has never been forced to respond. And we are learning, I think, in real time that these institutions, we believe, uh, had the capacity to safeguard and enforce separation of powers, for instance, uh, are not as robust as, as they perhaps need to be. And we see that, and I, I, you know, for the, I've been sort of bouncing around from beat to beat over the last year or so. Um, but I spent a fair amount of time on Capitol Hill, and I can tell you, the mechanisms for compelling people to testify in the administration are just insufficient. Uh, a lot of this stuff has been essentially the blanks have never been filled in. I would suspect that when we look historically, provided things don't take a, a radical turn that we don't expect, that you will see uh, post-Trump a series of laws or regulations that more strictly govern the behavior of a president in terms of responding to this kind of thing. Yes, I think that's uh, Elizabeth Warren, among others, has mentioned a lot about um, having these laws and respecting these norms. Well, let me kind of do one follow-up question on that. And um, in this process, who do you think, or I guess how is it shared, because it's kind of both, how much of the responsibility to make him follow norms is the uh, Democratic Party, and how much is the press? Well, I think – I think we're leaving out a pretty fundamental player here that may have more responsibility than any, and that is Republicans in Congress, uh, primarily I lost the, the Republican. Yeah, the Republican, <laughs> the Republican-controlled Senate, and before that, the Republican-controlled House. But, but I think, I, I think in terms of us as an institution, frankly, um, I, I think the press has done a fairly good job. The problem is Donald Trump again, presents the sort of challenge to the way that we do our regular jobs um, that, that the system hasn't really been able to respond to. We're not able to respond as quickly. I think the whole fact-checking establishment that's been created by, by the media 
is is a great great addition to to uh, the national press. But I think, you know, when I was covering the White House, man, and when I cover the Hill, every beat I'm on, there's a principle for there is a um, um, an imperative to get a scoop, right? The main thing you want to come up with is something that other reporters aren't coming up with. Well, Trump is really good at doling those kind of things out and leaving his staff open to the point where you can get scoops. But scoops don't matter <laughs> unless they are about fundamental national policy. So we see this flurry of activities inside the room, stories about Trump, people making a million bucks writing tell-all books. But the story is really outside the room and what he's doing institutionally. So I think to some extent our quest for scoops the media's general kind of quest, reporters competing against one another for these little tidbits of information, I think is wrongheaded, and there needs to be, and I think it's 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 forming now, but it hasn't coalesced. Is I think we need to be we need to act far more, pooling our resources institutionally together in order to extract information. And now, in terms of the Democratic Congress, they're they've only been around for six months, um, and I think. It certainly doesn't help when you have committees kind of stepping all over each other and individual committee chairs like Jerry Nadler, for instance, uh, and, and Adam Schiff kind of competing for witnesses and kind of fumbling things, as we have seen Nadler do conspicuously over the last week. So um, I, I think the, Demo the Democrats are kind of learning uh, their way, but also the president has just completely given them the stiff arm, and the courts are going to decide ultimately – at least in the medium term, whether or not he's forced to respond. But then the last group that we were talking about, the Republicans in the Senate, I think there is something to be said for them enabling the president. I think when you talk to senators, Republican senators, off the record, when they're not being – when they know their names are not being attached to stories, as I do quite a bit in the course of my work, you hear them speak really unfavorably about Trump and really hopefully about Trump getting his uh, wings clipped on issues like trade – on issues like his interactions with Iran and Saudi Arabia, and very little of that manifests itself in the public. So if people are concerned about the way the president is acting, I think a lot of that responsibility has to go on his fellow Republicans. Yes, and I wanted to ask you one more question that kind of relates to this, and that would be yeah. uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders stepping down, and when she's replaced – do you think that the new person will be told, you know, this is how the job's been done for many, many administrations, both Republican and Democratic, or do it the way Sarah did? Look, I, you know, first of all, in general, there is no authority that will tell anybody to do anything. So, there, so I mean, I think that's what people, you know, I, I hope people now, by now, get the general sense that this is an improvisational administration and that there's really no controlling authority uh, sort of telling anybody how to organize things. So it's very personality specific. I knew Sarah really well. And I will say personally, I, I, I have a great deal of affection for her as a person. We had a very good relationship personally. I have real issues with the way that she conducted uh, her office, the way that uh, she refused to hold press briefings. I think we're on, we've passed the hundredth day, which is just obscene, right? Um, the, this White House needs to be accountable to the press and to the country. It is a complete abrogation of, of their responsibility. We've made that really clear. Um, but
But, you know, part of the reason Sarah did this is because she saw the Sean Spicer example, where Sean got out there and tried to, to dance in the spotlight, and he fell down a lot. The president ridiculed him and gave him a lot of hell. Uh, and she was close to Sean, and I think she came to the realization that, you know what, I'm not going to put my head in the chopping block in the way that uh, Sean did. And she chose a different path to have surrogates come out and speak and to have a more informal briefing uh, a briefing structure. I think it worked for her personally. And the question is, if he selects somebody with, who, who chooses a bigger footprint, who seeks the spotlight, and is willing to risk uh, kicking the president off, that person will turn the briefing back into a thing. So I don't think institutionally the briefing has now been turned off. I think it depends on who he chooses to pick. And I, you know, I saw a couple of lists pop up about who might be press secretary, but I'm not seeing a, a huge rush of people who want this job. <laughs> yes. Well, I, yeah. I can continue to ask questions, but I'm going to stop right now and pass it over to Catherine, and then she'll pass it to Tim. Catherine? Hey, Glenn. Nice to have you on. Great to be I here. I know you love Alabama. I love Alabama. And, uh, We've, it certainly has been in the news. <laughs> yes, it has. Between <laughs> between their you know ridiculous abortion law and uh, its quick uh, its quick entry into law, and then also now we have Roy Moore. I guess he he announced right. He announced on Friday. He did. Yes, so Roy Moore did. is running for Senate. So what what do we do about Alabama? Well, the first thing I would recommend people do is they read my friend Brian Lyman, <laughs> who is a great, great reporter uh, covering stuff down there. Just that's a little plug for Brian. Um, but look, I think if folks in Alabama remember this, I don't know if the rest of the country does. When I, when I covered Alabama, it was very interesting. Um, I come from New York City, and I covered. I was down in Alabama for a couple of years, and I went back to New York. I think what I realized was that the the politics of Alabama were a lot more likely to have a larger national impact than the politics of New York City. So Alabama, which is where uh, President Trump had his first meaningful rally with Jeff Sessions at his side in early mid 2015 down in Mobile when he did the famous flyover with with uh, his Trump jet. Um, Alabama is the core of Donald Trump's support, um, and I think that the Deep South in general has been, but I think sort of culturally and in terms of the reception that he's gotten, I think Alabama is definitely core to Trump's political identity. I think what, what is fascinating is obviously he stepped in it last time during the with, with the Luther Strange uh, situation. <laughs> I will call it a situation. Uh, and I think he, I think he is loath to kind of uh, jump right back in. He has clearly had a lot of negative things to say about Judge Moore. What I think is more fascinating, obviously, uh, you have seen the reports. I am certain that Jeff Sessions is considering running for his old Senate seat. Uh, no one is happier about that than Dick Shelby. Um, but the president, in his interview, his president in his interview with Chuck Todd today said that the biggest mistake that he made as president, was appointing Sessions as attorney general. Now, now, that could, by implication, mean that you know he'd love to have him as a senator, and I think he probably would. Um, but that's an interesting dynamic. I do suspect, however, that if Sessions chooses to run, uh, Roy Moore will get smoked. Um, 
but one never knows because, uh, as you folks know better than anybody else, um, it, things can get real interesting in a primary in Alabama. <laughs> That's right. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. Well, thank you. I may have another question if we come back around, but I'm going to pass the sure. question to Tim now. North. Uh, good evening, Mr. Thrush. Thank you for being on again with us. Um, a pleasure. Nick, you wrote about a month ago about a, a story about Speaker Pelosi's pronouncement that the Democrats are not on a path to impeachment. But in the interval, of course, the ranks of those House members who now favor opening impeachment proceedings, whether it be via select committee or some other means has swelled to over 70 Democrats and one Republican. So the question is a simple one. With that, coupled with the administration's shenanigans, how much longer do you think the Speaker uh, can keep her thumb in the dock, so to speak? Well, there's a couple of things. You know, I think there is a very real possibility um, – that the political dynamic would shift and that she would have to reverse course or do some form of quote unquote limited impeachment. She talked about six weeks ago about using impeachment simply as a way to justify as a process. And this kind of gets sort of in the legal realm in terms of the court cases to prove a, a reasonable justification for summoning all of these people to testify. So, if you say you're opening an impeachment inquiry, you're not. Her point would be, oh, we don't really want impeachment. We just have to say that officially so that we can have a legal argument. No one really believes that that would work because I think the minute you kind of summon uh, summon the demons or angels of impeachment, depending on your view, that's that. Uh, and Trump himself, at times, it seemed to really, really want her to do that. So I think if you're kind of looking at the politics where they stand right now, I think what is interesting is there has not been a groundswell, not been a groundswell among the 2020 field to proceed with impeachment. There has been there has been a split in it. Uh, you have Bernie Sanders, I think, coming out very early and saying he was against impeachment. You have people like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker who are for impeachment, and Elizabeth Warren has joined that group. Um, but if this had been sort of a unanimous, uh, kind of a unanimous position by the 2020 candidates, um, Pelosi's position would be significantly different. As it stands right now, she views herself, and I think a lot of Democratic candidates, even those who are pro-impeachment, view it the same way, is that she is taking the tough call, that she is saying no. And so they, a lot of these candidates, have the benefits of calling for it without necessarily having it happen. And I think that in a lot of ways, at this moment, the, the dynamic can shift on a dime. At this moment, that's sort of what they want. The ability to call for impeachment without it actually, without incurring the very considerable political risks of it actually rolling down the highway. Now that may seem cynical, but you know, this is the role that Pelosi believes that she, uh, she should play. Now in terms of her rank and file, the issue here is whether or not these 40 frontline people who took seats that, that Trump won uh, in the 2016 election, if they turn en masse against her, that would make life incredibly difficult. She can totally afford to have uh, people 
ventilating on the left. That's kind of what happens anyway. Um, but if she starts getting some of these 40 folks uh, who are, uh, you know, who, who come from more conservative districts pushing for impeachment, then she's in trouble. At the moment, it's only been a handful of those people. And, and the other thing I want to kind of point out, two things, two final things. No one is really attacking her personally. You don't really hear people saying Pelosi needs to get on the bandwagon. When you start hearing the, the criticism going from the president jumping to Pelosi, then things have changed, right? So if mm-hmm. people start getting on her for blocking this and it becomes a groundswell uh, not for impeachment but against Pelosi, that's a fundamental shift in the dynamic. We have not seen that. So what that tells me as somebody who watches politics is that while people may want impeachment and the benefit of standing on top of their car with a bullhorn screaming for impeachment, they're okay with Pelosi playing the role that she is playing. Now, the final issue here is the clock. And this is, I think, uh, this, I think is, is an iffier thing. Pelosi thinks if she gets to the recess, if, if she gets through the next few weeks, really, month or so, uh, without people pushing for impeachment, then she's clear that then that becomes an issue that's essentially handed off to the 2020 field and that her latitude for action just based on the clock and the time frame that it that it kind of gets away from her uh putting the pressure on her and the logic that Pelosi and her people have uh expressed privately is is pretty simple and that is how many votes are we going to lose for not pursuing impeachment they think none they think if you don't like Donald Trump and you're a democrat you're going to vote against him and for Democrats. How many votes would they lose if they pursued impeachment and, and had the result of not getting him impeached, which is, which is a, a near certainty considering the Senate would probably like the very, very low percentage possibility that they would actually convict him and remove him from office. Mm-hmm. So the, the percentage possibility of the Democrats losing votes for pursuing impeachment is in her view, and it seems pretty indisputable at this point in time, uh, that it is a lot uh, more dangerous than not pursuing impeachment. And as you guys know, I'm sorry, I keep getting these incredibly epic long answers, but like, as you guys know, politicians, when given the choice between doing something dangerous and doing something that is less dangerous, often choose the latter. Mm-hmm. And, so that and was speaking, a long explanation. <laughs> <laughs> but a very good one. And, and, and speaking of, of looking forward toward, toward the election with Donald Trump, of course, he's now had his uh, first major kickoff rally in in Orlando. Uh, did this rally expose perhaps that the 2020 campaign could likely be a 2016 redo as far as the playbook aspect of it from the Trump side? Uh, you know, I was reading um – uh, some things I wrote kind of late in the election in 2016, and I got practically everything wrong. I wasn't alone in that. <laughs> I went through <laughs> just to see how I just I went through just to kind of see uh, how bad I I was in terms of my prognostication. But there was one thing I, I wrote that I remembered that is still true, and that is um, uh, Donald Trump is very good at reading page one of his one-page political playbook. Right, <laughs> it is. It is the same, and this is his genius, and it is a genius. You do not get elected president of the United States without having a genius for this stuff. It is too damn hard. Too many people want to do it, right? What Trump is really, really good at 
is is cutting down the complexity, uh, knowing precisely who he needs to go after in terms of uh, his his base, and getting it and getting the pitch right. And he's really, really, really good at that. He's better than anybody on the field. He's the most talented politician in America when it comes to that kind of thing. So, you know, it was a big red hot mess. But every single speech I've ever been at for Donald Trump, everything I've ever seen is always a big mess. So why, you know, there's a, here, here's something which will get like two of your listeners. This will be, a, I'll give you some Hebrew. It means why is this night different than any other night? It's a Passover question, and it, and it fits perfectly with Trump. It, it, it is essentially he's going to keep doing the same thing over and over again until it stops working. And so far for him, you know, he gets 42 to 43 percent of the American people with this pitch, and he's not going to stop. Mm-hmm. Now, one final question uh, about the next year's campaign, and I'll throw it back to David. But since you cover Capitol Hill, you've had an opportunity to see Elizabeth Warren in action uh, up close. Why is she suddenly catching fire? Because she's serious. Uh, you know, she occupies because because she is a person uh, of um, who takes her job very seriously, and she provide and she gives you Bernie Sanders plus Sanders. Uh, and I'm, I'm starting to cover Sanders a bit more. Sanders is uh, is a transformational figure politically in the Democratic Party, even though he's not actually a Democrat. He sort of brought this energy, this issue set to the Democratic Party. And Warren is a far more specific policymaker. So Sanders is sort of responsible for bringing to a large, to a large extent this message to the national arena. Warren refines it and, and puts policy behind it. And that's more important in a Democratic primary than it is in a Republican primary. Democratic voters tend to want to see candidates who have a real program. You, you know, Hillary Clinton lost the general election, she, but she did win. She beat Bernie Sanders by how many votes? I think it was four million more than Sanders had in the, and she beat Trump by two to three million. Uh, so there is a there is an people tend to think that the, whoever lost the race got everything wrong, but. The specificity and seriousness of Hillary Clinton was important to Democratic voters. And I think when people see Warren, who is – if you just sort of look at the two side by side, Warren is, is running – she is currently running a much more disciplined campaign. She is a much more self-contained and disciplined person. Sanders is a, is a less organized but more passionate speaker. Uh, my suspicion is those two are going to be sort of occupying – a very similar lane for a very long time, uh, kind of like uh, it's total apples and oranges here, but just as a comp, uh, a little bit like Rubio and Cruz towards the end of the Republican primary in 2016. Not to say that that's going to be the outcome, but the problem for the both of them is they occupy the same amount of real estate. They occupy the same lane, essentially. And with that, I'll throw it back to David. David? Yes, uh, Glenn, one final question, but a two-parter that's related. Just looking at this now 24-candidate field after um, the representative from uh, Pennsylvania got in today, which since Joseph they got Sack, in, yeah. which can, Joseph Sack, yes, which candidate yeah. has underwhelmed and which candidate has exceeded your expectations from when they 
announced. Oh, come on, man. That's easy. That's like a layup. Um, <laughs> okay, we'll take Beto it. Aurora, I mean, come come on, man. This is like – this is like, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the sports team that, they, that he would uh, remind folks of. But, uh, I mean, O'Rourke has incredibly underperformed. It's, it's really astounding. Um, the level of excitement about him entering the race and then it just falling apart. Um, uh, and I think Mayor Pete, I, I, so I think there's a, one actually replaced the other. I think Mayor Pete um, is clearly, at least it seems at the beginning of this process, um, he, he's sort of the most talented political performer out there. He's got kind of a, he's got, you know, Democrats are always looking for the next Obama. He's not that, but he's clearly cool. Right, I think he is the cool. I'm a 16 year old kid in suburban Maryland. All of my son's friends immediately became Mayor Pete fans. Like the minute he entered the race, they were into Beto before, and now they're kind of like moving towards Warren. I think Warren is getting a, a serious look, um, but I, I think Mayor Pete has uh, he sort of captivated a certain segment, particularly of, of young people. So. I think he's definitely he's definitely a big surprise, and I think O'Rourke, it's just amazing, man. It's kind of like Jeb on um, Jeb in 2016. Just it's like the air coming out of the balloon. I don't think he, there's any way he's getting back, but you never know. I mean, he could have one great, he could have an amazing debate and then pop up 20 points. Well, since it was so easy, I feel like you're disappointed. Um, you know, I think you're absolutely right that uh, you know Mayor Pete caught fire. Now Elizabeth Warren is. And we have the the um, gentleman John Aristotle that uh, runs predicted, and he, you know you kind of uh, bid on the next big thing in politics. You got to catch it early, so and we do buy sell hold on our show too. So yeah, make a prediction. Who's going to be the next big thing to pop up, um, kind of after Elizabeth Warren? No way, man. Okay, well uh, I thought you were going to ask me like who's going to win because I don't have a clue. Um, no, I won't. I would say. Uh, the one the one thing I've thrown at you, okay, I'll give you two other candidates because I also again think they kind of pair off in in uh, in a certain extent too. Um, I think Cory Booker has a lot of energy. Um, he's kind of underwhelmed. He's been a little bit kind of lost in the field, but I think South Carolina uh, may give him a little bit of rocket fuel. It's a predominantly African American primary. And and Booker just has a ton of energy, and he's a positive guy, right? Um, and I think similarly, and and I'm not I'm not pairing them because they're both African American candidates. It just happens to kind of work out that way. I think uh, Kamala Harris is the opposite. I think like she is a candidate who um, who I think needs to to sort of up her energy level and sort of get people more excited about her candidacy because when you Arguably, if you look at Harris, um, she's got the most complete package of virtually any candidate in the field. She's a serious person. She had a um, significant job in California. She represents two constituencies that are core in the Democratic primary. She's African-American and she's female. Um, More than that, she embodies a lot of the issues that both of those groups uh, care about. and she has a fairly – she had at least initially a fairly impressive organization. She hasn't necessarily caught fire in part because she's very cautious, reactive, and uh, not, not particularly exciting at the moment, though she had a very good rollout. 
Booker, if you kind of look at the videos of him in, in South Carolina, he, I think he's got nothing to lose. He doesn't give a damn about um, appearing super dignified or presidential. I think he is sort of coming out of his shell. Uh, I, I think uh, Booker might ca- catch a little bit of energy. That would be my prediction. Well, that sounds like a solid one, both of those. Well, Glenn, thank you for coming on the show. Before you leave, uh, tell our listeners where they can – I mean, we know New York Times, but more specifically where they can get specifically your writings. Well, I, I think the best thing is just to check my Twitter page, uh, uh, which is at Glenn, two N's, Thrush, T-H-R-U-S-H, and you can um, uh, see me getting in trouble with my bosses every single day on Twitter. <laughs> All right, thanks again Hey, always great talking to you guys Thank you And ladies too Okay, (laughs) bye-bye Yes All right, well that was Glenn Thrush New York Times, just political reporter extraordinaire Has written books that cover uh, The 2012 campaign I mean, I guess if you want to find about the 2012 campaign There's always a writer that covers Writes the books Glenn Thrush's books when he was a politico are those for that campaign. Um, guys, we got just a, a um, Catherine, can we just got just another few minutes? And Catherine, you ask about uh, Roy Moore. I sent y'all the, uh, you know, the text this week saying that guy's going to get in. He does not have the same view of himself that the rest of America and Alabama do. And sure enough, he got in. Catherine, do you think he can win the nomination of Alabama for the Republican primary? I think he can. <laughs> Nothing surprises okay. me in Alabama anymore. Well, I'm going to give you a follow-up before I ask him the same question, because I see all this question in text. Will he win because the Republicans just – that's where they are politically? Or are they, are they just you know, too you – know, just too – bold to not vote for him. It's like, you know, is it, is it stupidity or is it just bravery that they're going to continue to support this guy? Catherine? Um, well, I think he um, has a there's a, a part of Alabama that, that identifies with him and, and people and the views that he expounds and they are a majority of the Republican voters. And and guys, I think it's my phone going out. Um, Tim, I used the word bravery, and that was probably a, a, not the wrong word from what I'm trying to convey. I would say more hubris. Uh, first, Tim, do you think he's going to win the nomination? I think he has a chance, and I think so because he has, uh, you know, a, a Devoted, hardcore following that will get out there and vote for him. Uh, I'm rather hopeful that he might not. The GOP establishment's opposed to him. Mitch McConnell vows to get him beaten. Uh, Trump's uh, junior is even mocking him on Twitter. And he brings the baggage of the last campaign with him. Um. Go, go ahead with your now, next question. Well, if he wins, same question. Is it hubris or is it just because 
they just don't know any better that uh, enough of the Republican voters that that's just not that their state's Republican, but it's not that Republican. Yeah, well, you know what? Since I looked this up, since 1913, when the direct election of senators was passed, there have been 46 elections in this country featuring rematches of, of you know, a person that won it against the guy that he beat in the general election. And in only six of those races has the uh, previous loser come back to win. Now, I'm going to bet that the average Alabama Republican voter is not aware of that statistic because there is a reason for that. Uh, one being the other guy has the power of, of, of the incumbency. But the main reason I think he may not win the nomination is all he had to do was beat Luther Strange before, who was appointed by a scandal-ridden governor, right? Uh, this yeah. time he's going to be looking at Bradley Byrne, Tommy Tuberville, and uh, State Representative uh, Arnold uh, Mooney. And there could be more, but those are three heavyweight candidates vying for the same job that have already been out there and running before he got back in it. That being said, I still think Moore is a good shot. And I think uh, John Merrill, Secretary of State, is also looking at the race. He's looking um, So that would be another good candidate. And, and so – I guess the question is, is in this regular general election process, if there's a runoff, um, then I think that you could see Roy Moore, maybe he wins plurality with you know 37% of the vote or something, but then all of the other um, candidates support the one that comes out as the not Roy Moore candidate, be it uh, John Merrill, Bradley Byrne. Uh, Tommy Tuberville um, He might even get some Bama fans That are just, just can't stomach Roy Moore um, Well guys I tell you this You know how sometimes they send out surrogates To campaign I think we ought to have a mission If they do Roy Moore uh, surrogates We try to get his horse to come on over And we kind of You know like they pull people out of a cult And rescue them We try to rescue the horse uh, he's the only, or, or she If it could be a filly uh, only. I think we just lost David, so we're going to yeah, say good night. So, good night, so, uh, everybody. Good night, Zubine. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love.